This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Mark Schneier of the Hampton Synagogue. Rabbi Schneier founded the Hampton Synagogue almost 30 years ago, and it has emerged as one of the premier centers of Jewish worship, community, and engagement in the world with a vibrant and devoted community that comes together in all kinds of ways for Jewish community, fellowship, and learning. Moreover, Rabbi Schneier has been very active in building bridges with the Muslim community and is the president of the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding. Rabbi Schneier, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, and uh, it's wonderful to see you, and warmest regards to the rabbi, Rabbi Erica Gerson. Absolutely, I I will extend them. So your chosen passage is... um, Anyone who has their Bibles open, it's Genesis 21, 9 through 20. So please tell us what happens in that passage, as well as um, anything that may help us understand the context for the events that, uh, that you've chosen to discuss. Well, the context of the events and passage that I've elected to discuss with you is the story of Abraham's second wife. Her name was Hagar in Hebrew or Hagar in English and uh, their son, Ishmael, in Hebrew, Ishmael, who actually is the father of the Islamic uh, Muslim community. Uh, Abraham had uh, two sons, Isaac, who continued that chain of tradition, terms of Jewish continuity, and uh, Ishmael, who according to the Islamic Muslim community is uh, their forefather. So Hagar and Ishmael are banished from Abraham and Sarah's home. Abraham's first wife, Sarah, is very uncomfortable with the influence that Ishmael is having on their son, Isaac. So she literally forces Abraham to send away Hagar and uh, Ishmael, his wife and his son. And the idea of the union of Abraham and Hagar was actually Sarah's idea. It was ancient surrogate motherhood. Correct, because uh, Sarah knew that uh, she was not capable of having a child, and uh, a very selfless act in terms of encouraging Abraham uh, to take on a second wife. And uh, Hagar, born a son by the name of uh, Ishmael. So I am sure Abraham, with a very, very heavy heart, he's caught in this family uh, conflict, in this internecine struggle between uh, Hagar and his wife, uh, Sarah. But he's forced to uh, banish Hagar and Ishmael from uh, his home. And uh, he prepares for them. It says uh, here in the text in verse 14, uh, Abraham awoke early in the morning, took bread and water, and gave them to Hagar. He placed them on her shoulder along with the boy and sent her off she departed and strayed in the desert of Beersheba. So now we see that Hagar and her son Ishmael are wandering in the wilderness in the desert of Beersheba. 
Before we continue, do you read in 2114? I think it's interesting. Abraham awoke early in the morning. Whenever we see someone awaking early in the morning in the Bible, it's a proxy for they're doing the thing with enthusiasm. Well, that's correct. And also remember the same wording is used later on in this biblical portion with Abraham awaking early in the morning uh, to the aborted sacrifice on Mount Moriah. So it's the same uh, language that's used. Now, Abraham knows how to give a feast because in Genesis 18, when the three strangers slash angels appear, he and Sarah make them a feast with uh, what seems to be the first cheeseburger, among other things. Well, you saw also Abraham, one of his great qualities and characteristics is chesed, which means loving kindness, compassion. Uh, he is always seen as the paradigm, the embodiment of haknasat or chim in terms of taking in strangers, hospitality, being gracious, uh, just as uh, you and Rabbi Erica have that wonderful reputation on the Upper West Side, Manhattan. Oh, well, thank you. Great. Well, it's true. So uh, you're very Abrahamic. You're very kind. But Dana 21.14, it said he took bread and a skin of water. Does that imply either in the text or to you that he didn't give them very much? Because bread and a skin of water i don't what's the hebrew for skin of water that's what my art scroll has how do you read it says i know i have the same word here it says i think that it's not a question of how much that abraham gave them as much as what they were able to to carry you know with it in the wilderness and look i read this that abraham is very you know distressed and he's doing this with a heavy heart um he's the father of this child and i can only uh i, I in fact i can't i can't even imagine you know and speaking with you mark you know I'm, I'm suddenly coming to this realization if not this epiphany that in this portion abraham is asked to sacrifice both his sons you know the focus in the bible at least in, in, in jewish thought is on the sacrifice of Isaac. Look at the sacrifice that Abraham has to make just one chapter before in terms of his own flesh and blood. In terms of Ishmael, you know, it's very interesting to note that in the Quran, uh, when they speak of the, uh, the binding of Abraham's son in the Quran, it's the binding of Ishmael, not the binding of Isaac. They actually substitute Ishmael for Isaac. But it's the same story, the Akeda? Same story, just that there's a change in uh, personalities. It's not the binding of Isaac, it's the binding of Ishmael. But again, you know, that Abraham, this is one of the 10 tests that God administers to Abraham, you know, and, and we always say that from Abraham, we learn that in life there is no creature whom God does not test. You know, we are all tested. We are always tested. And Abraham is really the embodiment of being tested and, and how life will just spring upon us. You know, these different examinations and quizzes. Uh, one of the 10 tests, according to our rabbis, is the fact that Abraham had to send away his son Ishmael. So I don't think that he sent them away, you know, with just a... Uh, you know, a small container of water and, and a slice of bread. I'm sure that, if anything, that water was uh, filled with bitter tears, being, you know, told to, you know, send away your, your only child. 
But we do see in, in 15 when the water of the skin was consumed. So the water's all gone in one verse. Correct. Or, or the Bible chose not to really get into detail what the wilderness experience, uh, not the wilderness, and, and the wandering experience was all about. And they're going right to the challenge and, and what was so difficult and trying and arduous, you know, the fact that uh, they run out of water. And uh, here, you know, Hagar is now stuck in the wilderness. Her son is literally dying of thirst. And she cries out to God. You know, she's wailing, she's weeping, and she's crying out to God, asking for salvation, asking for someone to rescue her in this uh, also. I mean, imagine you know, how a mother must have felt, not only having been banished from her husband's home, but now having to witness you know, her only child dying before her very own eyes. Because she can't get him water. Because she can't get him water, and he's dying of thirst. They're, they're in the desert, and he's dying of thirst. And, and I must tell you, you know, I, I think back to my yeshiva days, how you know, the rabbis that I studied with, they kind of skipped over this. That's interesting, because this is, to me, the hardest story in Genesis. I mean, a father and a husband banishing his wife and son. I mean, one of the great things about the Torah is the honesty with which we approach even the greatest figures, whether it's Abraham or Moses, everybody's approached honestly. Even so, this is so difficult. And so you're saying when you were growing up in yeshiva, the rabbis skipped this? Well, they, they did not focus on this passage as much as they would focus on the passage of the binding of Isaac. Uh, and maybe that is also a result of, you know, back in the, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, the idea of focusing on the father of Islam, uh, the father of the Muslim world, you know, it, it's very interesting that the Bible, or I should say the Quran, treats Isaac in a much more profound and a much more respectful manner than I believe our Bible treats Ishmael. Well, how, do, how does our Bible treat Ishmael poorly? It seems like if you read the Torah from a shot point of view, um, Ishmael comes out pretty sympathetically. Sympathetically, but always as being very secondary, always being the other child treated as, as if he, he's a stepchild, not that he's really part of the offspring of Abraham. That's not the case in the Quran. In the Quran, uh, Isaac is referred to as a prophet. You will not see Ishmael referred to in such beneficent language, you know, here in the Torah, in the Bible. There's no question that in the Bible there is this delineation. And Isaac and Ishmael are not on an equal plane, uh, which is not the case in the Quran. So here you see Hagar crying out to God, pleading with God for salvation. And we go back to the text. It says, God heard the cry of uh, Ishmael, of the youth. And an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heeded the cry of Ishmael in his present state. Arise, lift up the youth, and grasp your hand upon him, for I will make a great nation of him. Now, this is a very interesting contrast to what I said before. Here you see Ishmael being treated in a much more positive way, and also very similar language that is used with other biblical figures, right? How often 
uh, do we hear about the um, descendants of Abraham, whether it's Isaac, Jacob, that I will make a great nation of him. Uh, Ishmael is the Bible foretold that today in 2020, the Muslim world is a population of 1.6 billion. 1.6 billion people around the world. I mean, if there's any definition of a great nation from a population perspective, it would be the Islamic, the Muslim community. As opposed, you know, there's always this debate uh, in Judaism, Jewish theology and the Talmud, you know, when God promised Abraham that he would make for him into a great nation, you know, great clearly does not refer to quantity. You know, we're only a people of 16 million. Maybe great means in terms of, you know, a qualitative people. I, I recall in one of my travels in 2013, I was in Indonesia as the guest of the president of Indonesia. And uh, I had just finished my last book, Sons of Abraham, uh, which is the definitive text in explaining what unites and divides Muslims and Jews. And the president, when I arrived, he asked me, would I go to a city called Joe Jakarta in Indonesia? That's their, that's like their Boston. That's their big college town. And would I be kind enough to address, you know, a large assembly? There are about 2,000 college students that came to hear myself and the imam speak. And after our presentations, the first question Mark, that was asked to me, you know, a student raises his hand and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, so tell me, how many Jews are there? So my response was 16 million. He says, no, not in New York City. How many Jews are there? You know, it's such a phenomenon. When you say that we're a great nation, yes, from a qualitative point of view, in terms of our contributions to society, we are a great nation. But if you look at Ishmael, and here, the Bible states, I will make a great nation of him, the descendants of Ishmael. And you look at a current population of 1.6 billion, you know, you see how this prophecy very much came true. And also, it's very interesting that uh, when it speaks of the angel of God calling to uh, Hagar, to Hagar, it's a very similar text that was used with the binding of Isaac. Just as Abraham is about to slay his son, an angel of God calls out to Abraham and says, please stay your hand. Do not you know, sacrifice your son. So we see how angels play very similar roles in both narratives. That's right. And, and similar in that they're, the angels are protecting the youth. Well, I don't know the youth, the sons, unclear how old they are. The sons in both cases. Correct. Again, you see a real parallel in terms of Isaac, and Abraham, you know, similar narrative in terms of Abraham having to sacrifice his two sons, uh, the angel in both narratives that came to rescue uh, the two sons, and the promise that both sons would be the fathers of great nations. Very interesting parallel that's being drawn here. And then, which is the point I really wanted to uh, discuss with you, and we probably will culminate in, in this point, is the verse, verse 19, where it says, then God opened her eyes, Hagar, Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the, the skin, you know, which would be like a canteen, right? The canteen of water, and gave the youth to drink. And God was with the youth, and he grew up, 
he dwelt in the desert and became an accomplished archer. He lived in the desert of Haran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. End of story. So this, to me, to Mark Steyer, this is one of my favorite teachings and lessons in the Torah, in the Bible. That if you ask most biblical devotees as to if you pose the question, how was Ishmael saved in the wilderness? Nine out of ten will tell you that God created a well. Hagar took from the well, gave to the young man, and that's how he was saved. That's not what the Torah says. Yeah, it says the opposite. It says that all God did was simply open up Hagar, Hagar's eyes. That the source of her salvation was there all along. It was right in front of her. And no one had to create a well. The well was there all along. And it's such a powerful metaphor for us in life in terms of how guilty we are of overlooking the obvious that when we're going through a difficult time, a challenging time, a trying time, we're looking for help, we're looking for some resolution. Often, all we have to do is just to open our eyes and the source of our salvation is right in front of us and how too often we're guilty of simply overlooking the obvious, what it's right in front of us. And I think for me personally, this has been one of the most powerful, powerful lessons in the Torah, in the Bible, that you don't have to uh, look to other people, you don't have to look to God, you don't have to look to angels. Very often, just open your eyes and see what's in front of you. And very often you will find the source of your salvation right there. Absolutely. Do you see any resonance between this story and uh, the story of uh, Balaam? In that, so he's riding the donkey. He doesn't see the angel right in front of him when the donkey does. That's a very interesting uh, connection. I definitely see a connectivity in terms of being able to open one's eyes. In that case, there's a, a fiery angel right in front of Balaam who's riding the donkey. And Balaam is instructing the donkey to keep going. And the donkey keeps going to the right and to the left and into a crevice. And Balaam gets frustrated. And then the, because Balaam can't see what's right in front of him. When even the donkey, who then as today is the dumbest animal, even the dumbest animal can see what's right in front. When Balaam, who may have been a horrible man and an evil prophet, but he was a brilliant man. He couldn't see what was right in front of him. I think it's a very intriguing point you make. I would see the difference in the two stories that the story of Bilam involved much more involvement. It was more supernatural. You know, you have a fiery angel, you have a talking donkey. Here, it's a lesson for every human being. I mean, just something very, very natural, just to open your eyes, just to open your eyes, to look what's in front of you, having the ability to reflect, to rethink, to reinvent has nothing, you don't need any talking donkeys or fire angels. Or miraculous gifts of wells, because the well was always there. I mean, even in the midst of COVID-19, Mark, you know, how many people have not been able just to open their eyes to count our blessings, to see everyday miracles, even the fact that, you know, this morning, you know, we opened our eyes and we heard the wonderful, uh, yeah, and we all read the wonderful news about Moderna in terms of the vaccine. They're now at a 95% rate of success. You know, yesterday it was Pfizer 
or a few days ago at 90%. And we just take these things for granted. And even without COVID-19, the fact that when you wake up in the morning, you know, how many people open their eyes and can really look around and, and count one's blessings? You know, it's very interesting that, you know, the first thing we're asked to do as Jews, is to uh, express our gratitude you know, with a prayer of Moda'ani. And Moda'ani actually means, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I believe it means grateful am I. Not I am grateful, but grateful am I, because we acknowledge the existence of gratitude before we acknowledge the existence of ourselves. And that's the first thing an observant Jew says in the morning is, I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude. Gratitude exists before I do. I notice it before I notice myself. I'm just so overwhelmed with gratitude that I have another day. And in essence, what Judaism tells us that when we wake up, we thank before we think. Beautiful, right. And only by opening one's eyes can you express that gratitude. You know, speaking of gratitude, gratitude plays a preeminent role in Judaism. It's probably it's uh, more preeminent than any other discipline in Judaism. You know, that as Jews were enjoined to recite no fewer than 100 blessings a day. In fact, the, our sages so highly prize the um, act of thanksgiving that they said that in the Messianic days that all prayers will be abolished except for the prayer of thanksgiving. All sacrifices will be abolished in the Holy Temple except for the thanksgiving offering. So we see that the ability to open your eyes to express thanks and to express gratitude is a preeminent discipline. And that's where the name Jew comes from. It's when Leah has her fourth son, she says, this time I will thank the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. And, and what's the relationship between Judah and, you correct me in the Hebrew, Hoda, which means? It says, Hapam hazot et Hashem. This time I will thank God. So the word Judah is, in Hebrew, is the word Yehuda. And the root of Yehuda is lahodot, which means to praise, to give thanks. So the root of being a Jew is to be grateful. Exactly. The very essence, the very essence of the definition of being Jew, Jew, which comes, which is a pre-aid form for the word Judah, the very essence of being Jew means to give thanks. So there's no question, but again, it ties into the process, opening your eyes, giving thanks, counting your blessings. You don't need any divine intervention. You don't need angels, or as you said, you don't need talking donkeys. It's a very simple, natural human act that we should look to perform on a day-in and a day-out basis. So if, if gratitude is one lesson we can draw from this passage, which we can from so many passages, another seems to be that, as you said, that the answer to your problem just might be in front of you. The well's there. It wasn't created. It was right in front of you. So as a rabbi of so many years who's counseled so many people in so much pain and so much variety of pain, I assume, how often does the counsel you give end up being some variant of what you need to help yourself? It's not beyond the sea. It's not in the heavens. It's right here. And therefore, your role as a spiritual leader is to help them open their eyes and see it. How often does that happen and how does it happen? Well, that ties into what we discussed because it it plays a very frequent role. And when people come to me with challenges and problems, uh, when they are facing a host of either personal or professional issues, 
What do I mean when I tell them to open their eyes, then goes to the process of giving thanks? How in life, we have to learn how to maximize our blessings and not to exaggerate our troubles. In terms of people need, when they're going through a difficult time, they need some context. They can't just be preoccupied and have this magnificent obsession with what is troubling them or what is confronting them or challenging them as much as they need to look at a greater picture and they need to see all the blessings. There is no human being, no matter even Job, Jonah, going through their trials and tribulations, they also had blessings at the same time. Well, I, I think it's so important, and you put it so magnificently, and I, we're going to capture that. I mean, it was, but that being said, let me challenge it a little bit. All right, someone comes to you in your chambers, God forbid, and says, Rabbi, I have five kids, and I just lost my job, and I don't know what to do next. You're not going to tell them, count your blessings. No, I won't say that way. What I will say is, thank God you are blessed with this incredible family. Thank God you have all these wonderful children. Thank God it's not a life or death issue. It's more of a temporary situation. And by focusing on what you have, as opposed to what you lack, that will enable you to begin the process of emerging. You know, it's very interesting that the 23rd Psalm, when we say, yea, though I walk through the valley. I love that Psalm. It's such a profound meditation that people should really study and not just say once. The unfortunate Jewish response to that Psalm is we just say it at funerals, but it's about life. And I'm going to explain to you how it is about life because it's not only in the situation of death, it's in the situation of any difficulty. What's so fascinating about the Psalm that we believe was authored by King David that he used the term, yea, though I walk. He didn't say you run through the valley. He didn't say you fly over the valley. You walk through the valley. Eventually, ultimately, you emerge. But you have to take one painstaking step at a time. If you try to run through the valley, you will not emerge. If you walk through the valley, walk, that also gives you the time to reflect to open your eyes, to see all the other blessings, ultimately, and eventually you will emerge from that valley. And the other thing about the shadow of death is that a shadow can only be created by light. Correct. So, of course, I would use this passage in terms of asking people to open their eyes and in, in the worst possible, possible situation, we can always find that light that you just refer to. And we can always find those blessings that will give us the strength and the courage and the fortitude to go on and to help us emerge from the valley. So you might say to that person who says, Rabbi, I have five kids, I just lost my job, I don't know what I'm gonna do next. You might say to that person, let's try to figure out together, is there a well in front of you that if we open your eyes, you're going to see. Let's talk about your assets. Let's talk about your strengths. Let's talk about your opportunities. Let's talk about your capabilities. Let's see what's there. Because in these dark moments, they're dark because your eyes aren't open and they're hard to see. But just maybe, not definitely, but just maybe there might be a well there that you're not noticing. There is no question. I would say that, but I would also use the opening the eyes in terms of getting people to examine. You know, I said before about maximizing your blessings and your opportunities because when a person is in such despair and such despondency 
they need something to help them reemerge. And the only way you can reemerge is by looking inward and seeing that you already have the foundation that's going to be a catalyst for your reemergence. So I can use this metaphor in terms of opening your eyes and let's see if there are opportunities in front of you. Also, open your eyes and see what you have behind you so that you can then begin to rebuild and to reemerge. There's so much there. I mean, if, if someone is, is in the hypothetical I suggested or another one, it, it would be very practically helpful to say, let's catalog all the things you got going for you. 100%. Because maybe your way out, your way out is probably one of those things. No, we just got to figure out how to put A with B. It may not be so easy, but you probably got what you need. Maximize your opportunities. Don't exaggerate your troubles. That's right. Now, it reminds me of the story of, uh, you probably know him, this Rabbi Tzvi uh, Weinrib. Yes, of course. Yeah, and so I, I read years ago, he had, uh, and I've never met him, but I read this great story years ago. He said he was a young man kind of struggling with who he is. He was married, had kids. He calls the Rebbe's secretary. He says, I want an appointment with the Rebbe, Menachem Shearson, and because uh, I'm going through all this struggle, I'm existential, this and that. And then the Rebbe's secretary says, the Rebbe, the Rebbe says, tell him to ask Weinrib from Baltimore. And he says, but I am Weinrib from Baltimore. And the Rebbe said, I know, that's the point. Exactly, that if you open your eyes and you can either look in front of you, look behind you, look inward, you will see that the source of your salvation is right there. It's all about, again, you don't need any divine intervention. Or the divine intervention already happened. The well was already there. Because you know all of our gifts are for the grace of God. So I give man a lot. Man, meaning the man, woman, you know, human. I, I give them a lot more credit than the uh, school of uh, determinism. But um, yes, I think that God created this world, and we have all these blessed opportunities. Uh, we just have to see them, and we're and so many of us are so guilty of too often simply overlooking the obvious. Right. And I think another very helpful lesson from this passage and your beautiful explanation of it is that it's easy to overlook the obvious. I mean, you could be Hagar and Ishmael and overlook the obvious. You could be Balaam, even though your distinction is right, he did overlook the obvious. I mean, that's the whole point of that story. He overlooked the obvious and he was the smartest guy of his generation in terms of IQ. But also, Mark, if you're in that state of anxiety and panic, uh, if you really think, you know, you're on your uh, your last whatever, and you're so despondent and you're so depressed, I mean, think about this. How could Hagar have opened her eyes, you know, when she's so overwhelmed with her with, with her child dying, you know, right before her? It wasn't Maimonides who said, when there's no bread, there's no Torah? I mean, her son has no water. What's he supposed to do? Right. It may come off into our correct. So the thing is that sometimes you need to come to see the rabbi and to come into the rabbi's study and to say, Mr. Cohen or Mrs. Schwartz, you know, before you are ready to throw in the towel, let me help you open your eyes and see the opportunities and see the blessings. And maybe your salvation is right there. Beautiful. Well, thank you for such a fascinating discussion of this uh, extraordinary and very difficult passage where I learned so much from you. Uh, now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malraux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. 
And he tells a story. He said, I just uh, ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had uh, saved a lot of Jews, then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Rabbi, in your 30 plus years of serving as a rabbi in the broadest term, a scholar, a builder, an institutionalist in so many different ways, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Probably as a rabbi, I've learned that people need to be led. People need to be challenged. People need inspiration. They need to be galvanized. Look, I'm, I'm going through that here in the Hampton Snigup. In the midst of this pandemic, we are the only uh, synagogue, probably the only house of worship in this country that is expanding and building. Uh, we're embarking on a major, major construction project now as we build the new children's center and campus. And people cannot believe that in the midst of this pandemic, you know, how is it possible that an institution is expanding? And I believe that one of the reasons we've had such an immense outpouring of support and generosity that people are looking, you know, for leaders that can, in the midst of darkness, as, you know, together we walk through the valley of, of the shadow of, of, you know, COVID-19, they're looking for that inspiration. They're looking for that hope. You know, I, I often say that, you know, where there is no hope, nothing is possible. But where there, where there is hope, nothing is impossible. So I find that people need to be led. They need to be inspired. And, and that's, I think, a very, very important role for a rabbi. I mean, that certainly comes through from Exodus to Deuteronomy. That's what Moses is, and that's what Moses does. In the sense that, could you imagine the people in the desert, the desert generation without a leader like Moses? You know, they were talking, let's go back to Egypt. You know, it, it was like they needed that leader. They needed that inspiration. Without Moses, that singular figure, they would have dissipated and disappeared and we would not be having, the rabbi's husband would not exist. Listen, I, I just spent uh, this past Shabbat, I had a bat mitzvah that I had to attend on the Upper West Side. It's my first weekend back in New York City in nine months. And the many people that, that I encountered, they said, please tell us, you know, what's your magic formula? What's your secret sauce? You know, how is the Hampton Synagogue just leading the way in terms of being so inspirational and just, you know, very, you know, simply the fact that we're building and expanding, you know, people can't even, and, and I think your insight about Moses and what they experienced in the wilderness and how he was able, you know, to buttress, you know, their sagging faith and always kept the people's eye on the prize in terms of entering the promised land. I think, you know, that's, that's one. And then, uh, the other thing that I've learned is how ignorant people are of the other and why there is so much bias and prejudice and bigotry and discrimination. And it's, it's really out of a simple ignorance in terms of not understanding the other, not respecting the other. You know, you're, you side before Exodus, you know, of the 10 plagues. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. And according to our sages, it was a very unusual form of darkness. It was not a darkness that affected the eyes, but it was a darkness that affected the heart. It's, it says in the ninth plague, uh, it was so dark, no man could see his brother. Right. That 
The Egyptians, you know, they could not, according to this interpretation, they could physically see the other, but they could not feel for the other. They had no empathy. I think it's a plague of depression, perhaps among other things. I think it, it was a plague of a lack of empathy. And the fact that they could not feel for the other, they could not care for the other. And that, to me, is the most terrible plague of all. And that's why it's incumbent upon us, particularly those, those of us in leadership positions, in rabbinic positions, to bring that light of understanding and caring. Uh, you know, I, I often speak of the common faith and the common fate and how our single destiny must strengthen our bonds of concern, compassion, and caring for each other. Very interesting. Yeah, no, that, the ninth plague, uh, that could be a whole other discussion. It also says uh, no man could see his brother and they couldn't get a bed for three days, which is why I think that's, a, that's an expression of depression. Now, but one of the beautiful things about the Torah is there can be multiple interpretations of the same passage, each of which is true, none of which are contradictory, all of which teach us something. Judaism is great and our interpretations are great. And that's the beauty, as you just said, Mark, of the Torah that there are a million ways to skin this cat when it comes to any passage, when it comes to any interpretation. And I want to thank you. I mean, I very much enjoyed this discussion and even discussing this passage with you uh, brought additional you know, insights and it was a great learning opportunity for me personally. So I, I thank you for that. Well, thank you. Now, just one final question, comment. So at the Hampton Synagogue, one of the things that's so terrific about it is how you take old melodies and put them to Beatles music. Do you still do that? <laughs> yes. Look, I invite all your listeners. I, you know, it's, it's really unprecedented in Jewish history that our Shabbat services on JBS, the Jewish Broadcast Channel, we have over 200,000 homes every Shabbat. We have services Friday evenings at 7.30 and 10.30, and then on Shabbat morning at 11, Shabbat afternoon at 2.30 that over 200,000 homes can get a taste of what it is like at the Hampton Synagogue liturgically and musically. And you should know we have two very exciting developments that I will break on the uh, Rabbi's Husband podcast, that we're, we're reformatting the services so that at the bottom, let's say of the Saturday morning 90-minute service, There'll be a caption of the prayers in Hebrew and transliterated into English, so you'll be able to daven with us. And the other big news, which was announced at the JBS board meeting on Wednesday, that as of December 8th, right before Hanukkah, JBS will now be on Comcast, which means it will be telecast in 77 million homes across America, which is practically every single home that has a television so we're going wide. And once you know, we evolved in terms of having uh, special guests discuss the Torah portion as part of our service, Mark Gerson, you will be my first guest. Well, I'd be honored. Thank you. And uh, not only will your listeners be able to hear you through the podcast, but they'll be able to watch you on nationwide television as well. Wow, I will be so honored. Thank you. And it, it just it really occurred to me that when, particularly with regards to how you put a don't alum to the Beatles, this is what Rob Cook was talking about when he said the old shall be renewed and the new shall be sanctified. Correct. You just have to do it. That's what you did, right? When, when, when you put the old, a don't alum, to Beatles music, it's a manifestation of that. The old shall be renewed, the new shall be sanctified. 
as long as you maintain a balance. You need your traditional tunes. You need some contemporary tunes. It's all about balance. And it's, it's an Orthodox service. 100%, of course. Right. It's an Orthodox service with, with Beatles music, with a Donald Lump to Beatles music. It's beautiful. And remember that when it comes to synagogues, there's no business like shul business. <laughs> All right. So we, we take the show business to the shul business. And thank God it's going well. Right. Well, thank God. So, uh, Rabbi, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion on so many different subjects. All right. Have a good day. Thanks so much. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.